Welcome to Unfuck Your Head. I am your host, Kat Jordan. It's time to take action, get out of bed, smell the new day, and unfuck your head. Your head. Well, hello. <laughs> My name is Megan. I'm 31. I am a mom of three. I am a raging hot mess of anxiety and sense of humor and sarcasm. That's a good combination. (laughs) So, um, I'm here today because I saw Kat was looking for people to speak on her podcast, and I wanted to take the opportunity to kind of talk about where I've been, um, because we kind of live this suburban life where we all put on the really good face, and, you know, it's important... It's important to me to normalize the struggles that we go through, um, because I think it defines who we are. Absolutely. Including the fact that I don't have childcare right now, and so we're recording with my two-year-old. Which is fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This is the first time in like a week I haven't been holding a baby, so I'm okay. I'm totally okay. So it's a break. Um, So I was thinking on my way over like how I got where I am and how like my life had developed and um, one of the things I always talk about when I talk to other people about my story is growing up as a kid I remember like feeling like there was a hole inside me like I wasn't complete um and I tried even like with television sports fantasy junk food like as a little kid always trying to fill that hole how young do you feel like you were when you like recognize that Um, or even in reflection like how young do you think that started it's really weird I my mom moved several years ago and she was going through her boxes of stuff and I saw a picture that I had drawn in like preschool and you can act like you had to draw your family and I actually drew like the big circle in me I don't know if preschool me knew what that was Um, but here you are like even not necessarily having the awareness of knowing that but still representing it still drawing it as like this is how I see myself yeah uh, so as long as I, I can't remember a time where I ever felt like completely normal um, and I always compared myself to the other kids and I wanted to be like them or better than them um, for no there was no real like external pressure it was all kind of self-imposed uh, and it worked for a little bit like in school I did amazing in sports I would excel but it was because I pushed myself so hard to be that person Uh, and I went to a really small Catholic school so I grew up like rigidly Catholic um, which kind of speaks for itself yeah (laughs) I think we can probably all nod our head and be like okay yeah we know what that might look like we've heard stories we've experienced it ourselves so um and there were 30 people in my grade 
Yeah, so we're really small. We were all in the same class from like preschool through eighth grade, and then the school ended at eighth grade, and then I went to public high school. <laughs> so I went from like this tiny little community of people who knew everything about me to knowing nobody, um, and I remember just absolute panic and feeling like I would never fit in. And I don't, I don't know why I felt that. I mean, I never really had a problem making friends or anything like that, but it was just this feeling of like, I'm never going to fit in. Um, so I did kind of the same thing my first few years of school. I, I worked really hard at school. I got really good grades. Um, I actually I quit sports because the fear of other people watching me was too much. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Uh, and I couldn't perform the way I knew that I could. So... The high school me said, forget it. And it wasn't long after that, you know, the same story that so many people have. You meet the wrong people and the wrong crowd, but they tell you you're cool and you're pretty and here, try this and try that. Um, so it wasn't long after that that I was drinking almost every night. Um, and it was like immediate too. Like you hear stories about people gradually over years, like, I started drinking every night, and then not long after, I found opiates. Um, and I remember telling somebody the very first time I tried them, holy shit, I'm addicted to heroin. Like, instantaneous. Instant. Like, and for the first time in my life, it felt like that hole inside me was full. Yeah. And I was like 15, and a 15-year-old doesn't know how to process no. that. <laughs> no, so. except I'm going to keep going. Yeah, right? except like, this feels right. right. I'm going to do this until I can't do this anymore. And I probably, I don't think I took even a day off for the next couple of years. Wow. Um, and it, like so many other people's stories, you know, I, I dropped out of school. I Things just got worse and worse. If you were... If you were in my life, I would probably find a way to drain your bank account, steal your car, and bring it back to you and say sorry and do the next thing, do it again the next day. Um, and for a long time, there was a lot of shame in that. Yeah. Um, I'm at a point now where I've kind of been able to make amends to most of the people that I've hurt. Uh, but I just, I didn't know any other way. My brain was like, just go, keep going, do the next one, do the next one. And it was the only thing I could focus on. Yeah. Uh, so I was 17 um, when my, I lived with a single, my mom was a single mom. Um, she decided at that point that she wanted to just get me out of the area because maybe a geographical cure would fix everything. Right. Like many people do, they like if I'm gonna like take her out of this environment, maybe she'll be able to bounce back. Yeah, and it was it, it was a lot of like let's blame the people around, which yeah. the people around were not the greatest people, but neither was I, uh, you know. So it wasn't anybody's fault. It was just this was the situation. But so I went to go live with my father in Florida, where I would put together a little bit of time. Um, you know, maybe 30 days here, 60 days here. And I remember, again, I was 17, I was a minor, and there was no help available. Um, I remember the first time I told my mother I had a problem, she drove me to the emergency room because she didn't know what else to do. Yeah. Um, and she walked in going, my daughter's hooked on heroin, help her. And there were no rehabs. There were no treatment centers for minors. 
Uh, and that's one of the reasons I talk about it now is because the opiate problem is so, it's just everywhere and kids are starting younger and younger and we have come a really long way in adult treatment, but there's not as much Still for minors. For minors, absolutely. Um, Despite like there being tons of research saying, you know, the sooner, the earlier interventions, the preventative interventions mm-hmm. help, it, there's just not enough out there. Yeah. So I have a quick question. Mm-hmm. So um, as I'm hearing your story and as it goes along, you know, what one thing that you just said really stands out is that you, at some point you told your mom that you had an addiction and mm-hmm. you were stuck. Um, what did it take? Like, what did it take to you to finally get to that place where you had that conversation with your mom? Uh, that first conversation was pretty early on. It was probably like six months in. Um, and for whatever reason, whether it was that day I was having trouble getting money or doing whatever I had to do to get the next one, and I, I said to myself, and I can hear it, like, I'm not going to do it today. I'm just going to take the day off, and it'll be fine. Right. And by, like, 8.30 in the morning, I was climbing the walls. I, I couldn't think about anything else. Right. Um, and so I, I just, I grew up in a family that was very, like, we can will ourselves through anything. We're strong. We're independent. Let's do this. So I was like, "All right, I'm gonna will it," you know. Yeah. And by noon, there were thoughts going through my head that were just insane. Like, "Let's just end it all. You can't do anything else. This is all you're ever gonna be." And I just, I said, "You know what? I'm gonna ask for help because I don't know what else to do." Um. So I went to my mother. I met her when she came home from work and I told her and like I said she loaded me up in the car and we went off to the emergency room um but it it wasn't the end of my journey but it was one of the first times that I realized like there was a problem Mm -hmm. um because anything I'd ever wanted to do if I stopped I stopped you know if I got to the point where like all right I don't want to do this anymore and this was the first time in my life I was like oh I can't stop like and I, I don't know how to explain it to people who haven't gone through it because everyone's like, well, just stop. Yeah. And even now when I think about how I finally stopped, I, I stopped. Right. But until you're ready, mind, body, and spirit, you, you can't. There is no stopping. Right. Um, and you kind of just create this train wreck until you get to that point. Hopefully you get to that point. So you just mentioned, you know, getting to a point where you were just able to stop. And so a lot of people um, in recovery um, and even outside of recovery who um, haven't gone through it themselves have an opinion about people having to hit rock bottom in order to actually stay clean. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's some controversy around that. There's some people who believe that that's true, and then there's some people who believe that that's absolutely not true. And I just wanted to hear from you, like, what, what your thoughts on it. Um, I, I, there's this amazing wise old man who helped me finally get sober and he used to tell me your rock bottoms whenever you stop digging um, and he would also yell at me to put the shovel down <laughs> yeah stop digging <laughs> just, just stop you're already at your rock bottom just stop uh, and I yeah. look back like through the course and there were so many moments that were rock bottoms there were so many thank god that I survived through but would have been enough for other people or wouldn't have been enough, you know? Right, so it doesn't sound like there's ever, like, a rock bottom. There might be your last rock bottom, but Basically. there's never, like, one... That That's the kind of way like, I look at yeah. it. Yeah. 
Um, and mine, when I finally got to a point, and I mean just for today, but you know, when I finally got to the point where I stopped, um, I was involved in a 12-step fellowship. I was kind of faking my way. I thought I thought I was pretending to everybody that I was living this super amazing clean life, but I weighed 95 pounds and uh, people couldn't leave their pocketbooks around me, so nobody was fooled. But finally, this group of people sat me down and they said, look, we love you. You are an awesome person. If you want to keep doing what you're doing, um, if you want to keep doing what you're doing, go ahead. Just don't do it in front of us anymore. We don't want to watch it. And I was like, oh, what? what, what? <laughs> like, it, it, like being called out? Yeah. yeah. Um, and it floored me because I had... I, I had taken advantage of people for so long mm-hmm. that for the first time in my life people were like yeah no you're not doing that anymore um, and one of them dropped me off at all places of uh, at a homeless shelter that night and I actually detoxed on the floor on like a one inch mat with a hundred other people on the floor um, and if it wasn't the first time I had been to detox or rehab. I had been to dozens of them at that point. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the magic was, but I just, I, I said to myself, I said to anyone who would listen to me, I was probably really obnoxious at the time, but I said, I'm done. I'm not going to do it anymore. And so people said to me, then follow these steps, do these things. And because I'm me, I did some of them, <laughs> um, but the bottom line was I just didn't use, and I put was able to kind of get my brain back a little bit, and I mean, even now, it's been eight and a half years, and my brain is still not where it should be. It still works. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah, I mean, there are still moments. It's not so much anymore about, like, the drugs, but I'll find myself, like, obsessing about food, or football or going to the gym um just a couple months ago i was at the gym five days a week awesome i was in great physical shape but my house was a mess i was lucky if i was home to cook dinner (laughs) so like i'm really good and i've learned that about myself as the addict personality like i'm really good at like focusing on one thing and making that one thing look shiny and clean but everything else is kind of in shambles and falling apart right yeah Um, so adulting has been a lesson (laughs) because that was so much of like the development that I missed out on that I gave up, um, as a kid, you know, because I chose to go the path that I did. I I didn't learn how to be a friend. I didn't learn how to be a responsible adult. Um, you know, I used to go, like I said, I was part of the 12 step fellowship and I would get rides to meetings all the time. And it never dawned on me to offer gas money to anybody until I was like two years sober. And finally, I I felt so guilty when that like realization came to me, like things cost money in life. And you know, there's just a lot of lessons in adulting that you choose to give up when that's the path that you take. So this is, again, like a really interesting choice of words because um, you're, you're saying the word, I'm choosing, yeah, right? And 
that also has been a <laughs> Lots very of controversy. controversial um, term used uh, over decades of, you know, it's a choice. And so many of us saying, absolutely not. I am not choosing this life. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not deciding that, you know, I prefer to do this over this other thing. Is like, I literally don't have control to stop it anymore. Mm-hmm. So, in I mean, do you, even though you use that term, like, do you still think of it that way or is it different? I think today, if I were to go back to the life that I live, it would be a choice. It would be a conscious choice. Yeah. Um, I don't drink, you know, alcohol wasn't necessarily my problem, um, but today I don't drink and I, I joke with friends, like we see the moms having a glass of wine after dinner and sometimes that sounds really, really nice. Yeah. But it's a risk that I don't know that I'm willing to take because I don't know if it will lead me back there. So I have to make the choice, the conscious choice not to. Now, when I was in the middle of it and every day, you know, was all about getting the next one, there was no choice. There was no stopping. But now that I've been able to put a little bit of time between me and just that lifestyle to go back there, I would have to choose, you know. And that was, especially when I first got clean, um, there was this amazing older couple who were just filled with like platitudes and wisdom. And I used to come with them with all of these reasons, all of these excuses. Mm. Like, this is it. I have to get high because this is happening and this is happening. And my boyfriend looked at another girl and I don't know how I'm going to pay the electric bill. So screw it. I'm going to get high. Yeah. And they would tell me all the time, like, you have that choice. If that's what you want to do, go. But don't expect to live the life you want to live. Um, And even today, you know, I look at, you know, my life is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But I'm so grateful that, um, that I made the choice. You know, and again, it was people kind of made the choice a little easier for me by dropping me off at the front steps of the homeless shelter. And then the people that worked there were phenomenal because they were willing to deal with a young girl who thought she knew everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually, I did get kicked out of there for not following the rules. Mm-hmm. But then I made the choice to go to a 12-step meeting rather than, like you literally walked out of that place and one way was further downtown where you were definitely going to find something. Right. And the other way, if you went left, you would end up at a recovery clubhouse. And I went to the recovery clubhouse and they listened to me complain for months and months until I just kept going. That's amazing. Thanks. It's a real. I mean, like you have a lot of these like very um, pivotal moments. You know, like here I'm at a crossroads. Do I turn left or do I turn right? It's literally like it's it's. I can't even think of the word, Um, but yeah, it's to be like it's that clear and Mm -hmm. obvious is almost you roll your eyes at it. (laughs) Right, like you hear all these like cliches. Yeah, like oh sure, left or right, but But there's so much truth in that. And I think a lot of us, like, if you look back at your life, you can be like, oh, that was the moment where I could have gone this way or that way. Right. And I try not to play the game of, like, what would have happened if I went that way, because that can send you to the dark place. Yeah. You know, 
that's not necessary, right? Like the what ifs are never really necessary. I think we all do it, but mm-hmm. how much you want to play with it is kind <laughs> of up to you. So the other thing that um, kind of also stands out in my mind is, um, you know, the, the sense of community and the sense of others being able to hold you accountable and love you and support you unconditionally while also not, you know, enabling and placating mm-hmm. to the addiction. Um, you know, you've mentioned that there have been a couple, like, really pivotal people in your life. You know, do you see that as, like, the single most important piece in anyone's recovery? Is that that sense of connection with someone else or a sense of connection with community? Or do you think that there's a multitude of levels? I think I think that's the beginning of it. Okay. Um, you know, you go... Wherever you go, whether you go to a meeting or church or therapy or whatever, because mm-hmm. um, every every single person is different and different things work for everybody. So I'll never be the one to be like, you have to do this or your life is done. But when you find one person or a group of people who can connect with you, and I remember the first hug I ever got at a meeting, and I will get emotional just talking about it. Because it was for the first time in years, nobody wanted anything from me. You know, they didn't, they didn't want money, they didn't want sex, they didn't want drugs. They just wanted to give me a hug and say they were happy that I was there. And that's what kept me coming back to the next one and the next one. And then after a little while building those relationships, I started to learn how to work on myself so that I could be a better person. And I didn't do it. I I want to say, like, it would sound great to sit here and be like, I worked on myself so I could be a better person and I could, you know, be the best me. But really, I just wanted to be like the people who are giving the hugs. And I couldn't do that if I was still walking in with all of this chaos around me. Um, And I was angry and bitter for a very long time. Um, I was very scared of people for a very long time. And it was some of that work that put some of it to bed. I mean, there's still a lot in my life where I can feel things flaring up and I have to remind myself, like, this isn't the addiction world. (laughs) Again, like, these these people aren't out to get you. Um, But it's only been through the work I've done on myself where I can stop and take a deep breath and talk myself out of that place, Yeah, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I... making this face because it's like that takes so much strength and perseverance and you know dedication and will to be able to see it recognize it and then do something about it and then stick with it like there's a whole lot of steps and processes that like go into that it's not none of it is easy it's you know. like, like I would love to sit here and be like, yeah, you're right. I'm amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you are amazing. I'm fantastic. <laughs> I reinvented this meal. But I didn't do any, like, it was all things that were taught to me. And, like, people had to lay it out so clearly. You can be miserable or you can do this. Mm-hmm. And most of the time I picked miserable until yeah. I just didn't want to be miserable anymore. Like, very rarely do I pick the easy path the first time or the second or third, like, and so, like, 
everything that I've learned has been taught to me. So if I can teach even one person, you know, it, it's going to be okay. Just take a breath, and whether you deal with addiction or not. Like just take a yeah. breath, separate from the situation, and then my day's a little bit better. You know what I mean? Like I just want to pass on the things that people have taught to me. Yeah, and it sounds like that's that's the way that we know actually works. It's not rocket science, right? But it certainly takes, you know, people being able to see it and then give you the guidance. And it also takes you being able to hear it and see it. And I think that's where a lot of people, you know, um, especially in my line of work, you know, as a therapist, being able to recognize when somebody is actually ready and willing to hear what I have to say. Um, and I'll find myself, like, saying the same thing over and over again, like, every three months to the same person. Um, and I'll say, you know, I've said this to you before. Like, I'm not pretending it's the first time I'm saying it. And, you know, I might even feel that sense of frustration and then realize, you know, that's not, it's not about you know, whether or not they've actually heard me. It's just like they're not ready mm-hmm. to take whatever advice or yeah. thoughts, you know. Yeah. All right, so we just took a pause for a second because Finn over here was making some noise. And, um, you know, we were sitting here thinking about, like, the next part of your story and, and where we wanted to go with this. And, you know, I posed a question to you about, like, the opioid crisis and you know what our society needs to do differently and your response was um you know coming from a a high school dropout and I stopped you there I was like no Megan no (laughs) because it has nothing to do with your educational level right and what I'm asking you what I'm asking anybody who I ever talk to is not what can you tell me that is going to sound quote unquote smart like I want to hear from you as another person regardless of those labels regardless of those like socially constructed labels right um that I don't abide by (laughs) (laughs) um what your thoughts and feelings and opinions are because you're a fellow human and that's what I that's what I care about that's what I want to hear from from you not somebody who you know, regardless of your educational level. So, go. <laughs> go. Well, I think um, one of my walls has always been, and more so I noticed lately, is like that self-deprecating sense of humor. Um, kind of like if you set the bar really low, mm-hmm. then you can kind of just surprise people if you surpass it. But if you don't, it's okay because you already made the joke that you're not going to make it. Yeah. Um, and, so, and that in itself is really smart. <laughs> And again, not something told to me by me, something that in a phone conversation with a friend, she's like, you're doing the thing again. Yeah. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So that's my defense, my, my, like I said, the way of keeping the bar low. So maybe that'll be a 2020 thing to work on or just today we'll work on that. Uh, But (laughs) the opioid crisis in America. Oh, yeah. God, um, I don't. I don't know the answers. I know it's easy to sit there and point out the problems, but I think a lot of it is we don't talk about the problems. Um, it feels shameful to have a kid who's addicted to drugs, or Absolutely. and 
you know, I look at my kids now and I see some of the addict tendencies. I mean, they're five, four, and one, but they do things and I'm like, oh God, should I just book a rehab now? Um, So it's, it's my goal with them to talk about things as much as I can in a, in a level that's appropriate for right. them. Right. Um, you know, my, my oldest son knows that mommy doesn't drink at parties because mommy might not be able to say no to the second one. And he doesn't really know why or get it, but that was an answer that was enough for him. Yeah. Um, but I want it to be a thing because I, I can't change the entire world all at once, but I can help my kids grow up in a world where they feel safe for as long as humanly possible. Right. I can't change the whole world. I can't build rehabs. I can't, at this point, change laws. But I can make, I can be a safe place, whether it's my kids or anybody else. Um, And so that's why I try to be really open and upfront about my story. Um, And, you know, the things that I've done and the things that have happened, because I want anybody to know like if you need someone to talk to you can come and I will try to help in any way that I can but sometimes all you need like I said earlier is that that hug right. um, so I, I don't want to say my answer to the opioid crisis is a hug because that is terrible <laughs> <laughs> there's so much truth in but, <laughs> um, but so much of the stigma is just it, it, it's such a dirty thing that people try to hide away, and I think the more you hide, the worse it gets. Absolutely. Um, so, like I said, just talking to my kids, and one day they will go to meetings with me and know that if there's someone they need to talk to who's not me, you know, they have people, and I've tried to put the things in place so that they know there are safe people they can talk to. Um, people who aren't necessarily going to tell me, which is hard. Um, but it's more important that they know they're okay. Um, and you know, I've met a few other people in this town who have, you see them drinking and you know, they're having some trouble and they can't stop. And it's hard to watch. Um, it really is, especially it's hard to watch when everything is going good and you see them doing it. Like some people have a harder time watching the struggle, but it's like, I know what's coming, but I just try to let them know, you know, I'm not judging. I have, I, I don't judge. Trust me. I've done it. I've done it worse. I've done it uglier. Like it's fine. But if you ever need to talk to someone or if you ever want to stop, I'm, I'm here. Um, my house is usually messy, but I have a good coffee pot and a comfy couch. Like, <laughs> That's all that matters. Uh, coffee and a seat and a hug. <laughs> and a hug. I'm going to make a t-shirt that says I can solve the problems with that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's that. It's a big fear watching my kids grow up. And again, they're so young. They're just babies. But I... So you feel like, you know, just being open, honest, direct, raw, real about what addiction is and what recovery is and to like destigmatize it on whatever level you can mm-hmm. you feel like that's going to be enough for your space right and enough for your children 
for you. I can hope. (laughs) If nothing else, I hope I scare the crap out of them. Right. You know? I hope they see the scars on me and, you know, know that they don't want that. If not, I want them to know that they can stop whenever. Um, That they don't have to hide it for fear of letting me down or of disappointing me because for so long all I ever wanted to do was get the approval of everyone else right. um, and that's why I think for a long time I tried to numb that with everything I could so if I could make my kids anybody really but especially my kids know that they don't need my approval um, no matter what we'll get through it and I try to tell them now like just just don't lie you know, if you have questions, ask them. Just don't lie to me. I don't, you know, I, I don't care you colored on the fireplace. Just tell me that you did it. Right. But. So you already see that, like, that automatic fear of disappointment and the the sense of shame that comes with that um, playing out. And we all know, well, I hope we all know, <laughs> that. You know, if we have this sense of shame and the sense of I'm going to disappoint other people um, unless I, I'm perfect or unless I do what I think that they think I need to do, um, that that is going to lead us to not really being our authentic selves and lead us to feeling like we're never going to be good enough. And that kind of can predispose you to, you know, finding other ways, whether mm-hmm. it's drugs you know, sex or food or shopping to numb out that feeling of, you know, I suck. I'm not going to be good enough. I'm not a good person. Yeah. You know? And my five-year-old will walk up to me all the time and he'll show me a picture or something that he's done. And he goes, Mom, is it perfect? Is it perfect? Mm -hmm. It's never, do you like it? Or look what I did. It's always, is it perfect? And there are times I don't know how to answer that. Um, I want to tell him no, but I love it anyway. Like, and that's why I love it. But you can see that he wants to be perfect. And so I try to encourage him to get messy and to screw things up as much as we can, like in a safe way. Right. Like, let's go ahead and play in the mud and that's fine. And it's, it's really, I don't even know the word for it, more than interesting to watch it on the other side um, and just try to let him know, like, this is your safe spot. It's fine um, because the world can be so hard. And uh, don't mind me. <laughs> I, I only get emotional when it comes to the kids. Um, the world can be really hard. And I just want, especially, I mean, I, all of my kids, but I watch my five-year-old deal with this just crippling anxiety um, that it's okay to be ugly. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay to make a mess. Um, and I, I don't love you any less because of it. You know, I kind of love you more <laughs> because you're so flawed and you're so perfectly imperfect and absolutely that there's so much beauty in just being a flawed human being mm-hmm. because that's what we are and it adds to the sense of humor and it adds to yeah. everything else um, and it's I grew up never 
it wasn't that nobody ever said things like that to me, that you're good enough, you're perfect, but I grew up never hearing it because the voices were so loud, screaming that I wasn't good enough. Um, and I've tried to find where it came from, but it, as far as I can see, it was all just internal. Like, I don't know what little kid comes up with this internal struggle, but that was what I did. Um, and I think it sounds like you're seeing that play out in your, your young five-year-old, right? Like you don't necessarily know where this idea for him that he has to be perfect has come from, but yet he has it and he has it so strongly, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm like in all of the, the beauty that comes with you being so authentically okay with your children being flawed and messed up and dirty and messy and to make mistakes and to truly love unconditionally because that is that is what unconditional love is and so many parents out there don't have that right Hmm. they don't have the ability you know they might say i love my children unconditionally but they don't actually have the ability to do that because they they think that their children have to be a certain way instead of no like the only way you need to be is yourself yeah period and they're such cool humans (laughs) I just like them who they are, but it's, and I do, even today, I can't stop myself from like putting that pressure on myself. So how dare I put that on somebody else? You know, like I constantly, um, I call it like the social media judging. Like I will look at the picture somebody posts and it's the most gorgeous corner of their house. And if you look at the other side of the camera, there's six days worth of laundry and just like all of us. (laughs) But all I see is that corner, and I want to know why my house doesn't look like that, and what am I doing wrong, and I must be flawed, or, you know, and it just, I go back to judging myself so harshly, so quickly, like, I feel like I don't have the right to judge anybody else like that, especially these little people who are just trying to figure out who they are, um, you know, and it's more fun to be messy, like. It's so much more freeing. It is, and you can see it in especially the five-year-old when he just lets loose and he just has these moments of I forgot to duck (laughs) (laughs) sometimes you end up with stitches and sometimes you end up with ripped jeans but it's fine Um, and I just I hope they always know that and when they forget it I hope I can remind them and they'll roll their eyes and <laughs> say whatever, but... But that's okay, because even if they roll their eyes, you know you're getting it. It's still going in their brain. Okay, so I just wanted to take a moment to... Obviously, our listeners, we're not, you know, video recording this. Hi, listeners. That, yeah, that'll be next. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I wish I had just the ability to capture the look on your face as you were describing your kids being messy and loving them for that because there is such a lightness in your face and such a like the epitome of what I would describe as like joy right and it's written all over your face which tells me it is so authentically real and raw for you to say that this is something that you really care about and this is something that you're gonna we're gonna and, and trust me I'm saying as I'm saying this I'm thinking to myself in my in my head like there are going to be days where you're not going to be able to do that, right? That there are going to be days where, and I'm guilty of this too, where 
I am not the nicest mom. Mm-hmm. I'm not the mom that I want to be all of the time. Um, but if you're doing it more often than not, and if you're trying to do it and making efforts and steps to do it, then that's, you know, that's it. You know, and I, I wanted a family for so long. Yeah. Um, and it was one of those things, like when I, when I say I was really into active addiction, like I was living on the streets and bouncing from couches and like, was not the kind of person who could ever build a house, never or build a home, never mind a family. Um, and then we tried for a very long time to have my oldest and kind of got to this point where like it, it was never going to happen. Let's just go enjoy our lives. Um, I say for a long time, probably like six months before we were like, it's never going to happen because that's how the addict mind works is if it doesn't happen right away. Um, then there's something wrong. There's something that needs to be changed or fixed. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I, you know, I did all the doctor's appointments and they said, you know, keep your hopes low. It's not going to happen. And then came a, came my oldest and, um, you know, so I started, it was a really hard transition to go from like, now I had some clean time, um, when he was born, but to go from like this junkie who, had mooched off everybody for so long and had no idea what to do to I thought I had to be like the super suburban housewife June Cleaver <laughs> real <laughs> housewives of Nashville like and it, it almost killed me like the depression and the not living up to my own standards and um do you feel like you had like external expectations too that was impacting it or do you again like to what you were saying earlier is like a lot of it was more internal than external um so when james was born we lived in the south we lived in nashville and it's an amazing town i love nashville but there's a very different culture than what i grew up with uh, mm-hmm. in new england where it's not that June Cleaver is expected. A lot of that was self-imposed, but it's definitely the woman's role to be more of, you know, the homemaker. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I am terrible at. Um, you know, I, I don't have the attention span to clean one room at a time. I'm usually doing all of them and none of them get clean. And if I remember to cook dinner, like, I'm really proud of myself. <laughs> That's a good time. Um, and you, you learn a lot about your partner when you have a baby. Mm-hmm. Because that was something, like, we had never discussed. Like, what are the expectations? Um, so I think in a lot of ways, one, I mean, I had crippling postpartum. I had no idea it was postpartum. I couldn't tell anybody that it was postpartum because... I couldn't like formulate those words. Um, but it was, I mean, there were days where it was a struggle just to put pants on, never mind anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in a lot of ways, I didn't live up to the expectations um, of other people and of myself. And the more I kind of failed myself in my mind, the deeper I would go and the darker I would get. And then, boom, before you know it, I was pregnant with my daughter. And I was like, oh my God, how am I going to do this? Yeah, now two. Um, And from one to two was 
insane. <laughs> like, they, yeah, that'll that'll change your life. Oh yeah, like, zero to one changes your life, and one to two changes your life. Then again, yeah, one to two was like exponential. Yeah, like, and they were seventeen months apart. And that's like that good addict behavior. <laughs> it's like let's just let's Funny. see what happens, right. um, you know. But I was able to kind of drop the bar in some ways, like my expectations of myself. Um, and I was able after my daughter was born to find some gratitude and to look at like where I had been and like holy crap, we're building this family, we're building this house. And that's when I decided we wanted to move back to New England um, because my whole family's here. And I had put enough clean time together that I had built relationships with them again. Awesome. Um, so, and it, it's really cool to be able to call your mom. Um, it's really cool to be able to call your mom and be like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> or to call her and go, I'm so sorry, I did all these things as a kid. Um, yeah. And she just kind of laughs. <laughs> but like, she's right down the road, and my brother's right down the road, and my right. sister's in the same state. Um, so like that family was so important to me. Uh, and then came the meatball and the baby. <laughs> No, I have to. I have to ask. Go ahead. Can you please describe to our listeners <laughs> who Meatball is and and just like I I don't know if there's <laughs> enough words. Okay, so my youngest son, his real name is Colton. He doesn't answer to that. He answers to Meatball. He is 15 months and weighs just over 40 pounds. Oh, um, cuteness. He's just solid, <laughs> and he kind of walks like a drunken penguin. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> he is, even when he's crying, he's smiling, and he's just the goofiest meatball. <laughs> like, I love it. Um, so then, then came the meatball, and two to three physically was really hard. But like mentally, it was like okay, let's let's just add another one. We got this. We got this, right? Yeah. Uh, but it just it like it takes my breath away sometimes. Um, I know it's twenty twenty, so I keep thinking about like where I was ten years ago in the past decade and everything that's happened, and it it, it really like it it'll take my breath away sometimes. Um, you know to go from not having a place I could call home, um, you know, no license, no real friends or intimate connections with anybody um, today, to having a home, to having these three tiny humans who are just fantastic and drive me absolutely insane. As they do. <laughs> um, with these little tiny humans that look up to me to teach them things, which is just mind blowing. Um, I have, you know, friendships and connections with people that are like genuine. Um, for the first time, maybe in my life, I have connections with people who don't want anything from me. Like I can just show up and just be. be. Yeah. And holy shit. How? 
amazing and beautiful and fucking awesome as that. And, like, terrifying for a very long time. Yeah. Because um, I found myself, like, what's the catch? <laughs> what do you yeah, guys like, really when is, want? When is the other shoe going to drop? And, and they're going to eventually, you know, yeah. show their true, true colors, right? Um, and, you know, today I'm at a point... And it sounds, again, almost cliche, but I'm kind of grateful for the journey that I went on. I mean, there are parts of it that I would not wish on my worst enemy, um, but it kind of, it, it set me up for the life that I have today. Right. Um, and how freaking cool is that? Um, and, you know, my life's not perfect. I'm, I'm a hot mess on the best of days. Um. You know, I joke that my superpower is anxiety. (laughs) It is a superpower. It is. Full disclosure. I can make the worst of any situation (laughs) with 10 minutes by myself. Um, That's beauty of anxiety. But there's room for growth. But I'm in a place where that's all possible. And it's because of those people who didn't give up on me. And it's because of the ones who were like, just cut the shit. Um, and yeah, to go back, like if I can be that person for anybody, mission accomplished, you know, and maybe that's kind of a lofty goal, but if I can be that person for anybody in the universe, whether my kids, a friend, a total stranger, someone who hears this and finds me on Twitter, don't read my Twitter. It's all <laughs> me complaining about my kids. <laughs> they will still find you on Twitter. They will still find me. Um, but if I could be that person for anybody, um, then like fucking miracle complete, you know. Then I guess I can give back what what they gave to me. Um, and I I don't know that they knew sitting me down and being like enough. We're sick of your shit. We love you too much to watch this. I don't think they knew that that would be the moment. Right. Um, and I think I think those people were fully prepared to cut ties, um, which is another life lesson all in itself. <laughs> like, yeah. you, you have to be have that level of self-preservation um, because I was draining. My brain is like jumping off into and different they, well, spirals, no, And that they were willing to cut out somebody who they still saw was beautiful because they knew that like they couldn't they couldn't bear witness to it. And, and there's I think there's a level of self love there yeah. where they had to love themselves enough to be like I'm not doing this anymore. And right. it has you can learn from it. I mean, granted, I fail regularly but you have to be able to love yourself enough to look at that toxic relationship and that you know not that you should be taking from relationships all the time but you get to a point where you're giving more and it's just it's not worth your soul um and so those people again have taught me that lesson of like all right where's your line um what's your sellout point and that's one of those wise old people down <laughs> who saved my ass used to ask me all the time when I would come and be like, this is it. I'm giving up today. Today's the day. And he, he'd ask me, what's your sellout point? And I'm like, huh? Yeah. And he would say, well, is it a boy? You're, you're willing to sell your soul for a boy? Oh, a job? 
And when you say it like that, it sounds so petty that you kind of just keep going, keep fucking going. It was another piece of like your journey. That puzzle. That puzzle that helped you get to the place where you're at now. Mm -hmm. And you know, today I just, I just don't fucking get high. Like, it's not, it's some days it's really hard, you know, like after surgeries and medical things. And I remember like just looking at that medication and being like, what would happen? But I, you just don't fucking do it. And there are enough people in my life who know what to look for and who love me enough to jump in and intervene and, you know, Thank God for that, because nothing I have done, I've done by myself. Absolutely. <laughs> we can't. No. It's impossible. Yeah. We can't do any of this on our own, and, and uh, I love that that has been such a, a clear message in your story um, of, like, not just the people in your life, but how you are now seeing yourself in other people's lives, not just your children, um, but your own friends and whoever in the future, because, you know, there's... There's this new, you know, catchphrase about recovery. Um, and a lot of people are saying, like, connection is a cure, right? Okay. And so part of, the, like, my question to you earlier about, like, that connection with others being a pivotal part of your recovery. And, you know, as I'm hearing a lot of this, too, it's not just your connection with others, right, and uh, community, but also... More, most importantly, you know, your connection with yourself, like mm-hmm. your true self and, and discovering that and um, discovering your superpowers, even if it happens to be anxiety, <laughs> as I'm sure that there are other parts of you that have superpowers. Um, and, and really, I don't know, we haven't really quite talked about it at length just yet, but like really establishing a sense of um, positive identity of like who Megan is when you are doing well and when you are having, you know, a good day. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? <laughs> Coffee, mostly. Coffee, yes. Love. I can relate. Being well rested. I can relate. Um, you know, I, it was a few years ago I was working with somebody on, like, going through character defects and finding everything wrong. Not finding it. Finding areas in your life that you can improve on. And I got so deep into it. I think I was like 97 on the list before she put, she suggested strongly that I stop um, because one of my biggest struggles has always been like, what are you okay with about yourself? And that was the writing assignment that like floored me. Like I've always been able to sit and tell you everything that's wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's the good things that I struggle with. And today, I, especially this past year, this past year has been a raging dumpster fire of, like, chaos and waiting to wake up because it was just so crazy. Um, but I've learned that I can just keep going no matter what. And it's not always pretty, and it doesn't have to be. And like, what a what a fucking relief. Um, Fuck yes, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. And I've learned that I am okay. That that I'm a survivor 
um, that I'm okay when everything is great and when it looks like I have the house and the picket fence and the two and a half kids and all of that. And I'm okay when all I want to do is curl up and run and scream. Um, I've learned the value of a sense of humor <laughs> the past the past year. Um, sometimes it's a defense. Sometimes it's the only thing that'll get me through. Yeah. Um, and then of being vulnerable. Um, that was something I've learned to kind of pride myself in. <laughs> Absolutely, because that takes a lot um, to do, to it, even be willing to do. Yeah, and it was... It was really hard this year to be like, you know what, things are hard, but I think my level of sadness isn't appropriate for what it is, and to finally reach out and get some help, and like, holy shit, like, my level of sadness was not appropriate, Um, but there was, and I can say I don't want to like brag, but I am proud of that ability to tell some someone that something is wrong yeah um because for so long it was everything's fine look everything's shiny and pretty and it wasn't and it almost killed me so on a good day is just that ability to laugh and to see the bright side to see that it's gonna be okay um, and a good day doesn't have to mean like everything is going great, even right. though that's fantastic. Uh, a good day to me is when I can get through without showing my ass. <laughs> <laughs> Literally or figuratively. Uh, depending on the day. <laughs> um, but, you know, there are days that I want to just scream and yell and be mad for no reason. Uh, and the days that I can either figure out why or kind of just get through it anyway, those are good days. Yeah. Um, you know, it's nice when everything is sunshine and roses and, you know, you go to bed and everything was great, but the days that I get more out of, in hindsight, usually not like as I'm going through it because that's when I'm cussing the universe. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's the really hard days where I didn't get high. I didn't tell anyone to F off. I didn't scream at my kids, which I, I do, you know, I think right. they all have Absolutely. those moments. Guilty I'll of it, speak for, sure. for me, I won't speak for enough, but I am totally guilty. But so the days I don't get high, the days I don't scream at my kids, the days I manage to do a few adulting things, whatever they are, whether it's like pay a bill or who knows, but that's a good day to me. Um, a day that I can get through clean. That's fucking awesome. <laughs> it's fucking awesome. awesome. <laughs> it, it, it really is. <laughs> I don't want to be corny, but it, it's a really cool fucking life. Yeah. Um, and adulting is hard, but it's so fucking worth it. It's worth it. 100%. Meatball. 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 I love you. Do you have a meatball? Yeah. Do you want to meet a little boy whose name is Meatball? Thank you for listening. Join me on the next episode of Unfuck Your Head as we continue to build a community where understanding human health is at the forefront of real change. Don't forget to hit subscribe and follow me on Instagram 
at Unfuck Your Head Podcast. You can also check out upcoming podcasts, my blog, and ways to contribute to our mission by visiting our website at unfuckyourhead.org. Fuck your head